listened to um, that passage from the Bible in reverent silence, which is pretty much exactly what I expected to happen. And that's what happened this morning at the 8.30 service. Uh, however, yesterday afternoon at the 4 p.m. service, something happened that I wasn't expecting. And that was that as the um, passage was read, there were a few chuckles along the way. And by the end of the reading, we were all laughing. Um, now, why I was surprised by that was that it actually kind of... Um, I think it's actually what's there. I think this passage is actually full of comedy. Um, last week's passage was full of irony. This week's passage, I think, is full of comedy. And um, it's curious. Uh, comedy and jokes are very difficult to, um, to, to, to spot when you're moving from one culture to another. Uh, irony is hard enough to spot. But funny stuff can be very difficult to spot if you're new to that culture. Um, so I suspect that this passage is full of funny stuff. Uh, let's uh, have a closer look. Well, <clears throat> Saul continues to be the major character in this drama. Now, in essays and commentaries about this book of the Bible, Saul is very often referred to as being insane. In a Shakespearean kind of way, Saul can look like this tragic tragic character, a king who's gone mad. But I think it's important for us to recognize that Saul was never mad. He was not insane. Other things are going on here, things that we'll miss if we see him through the lens of mental illness. But he is not mentally ill. Well, in our passage today, we have three scenes. In scene one, Jonathan, the eldest son of Saul, talks Saul out of murdering David. Um, Jonathan presents a common sense argument. Jonathan points out the obvious. Dad, you have benefited very greatly from David. David risked his life in service to you, killing Goliath. We all recognize that as the Lord's salvation, and we were all glad. David has never done anything wrong against you. And that was the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Yet Jonathan is acting extremely courageously to act in this way. Jonathan, technically speaking, committed high treason when he forewarned David of his father's intention. And he took his life in his own hands when he confronted his dad, because his dad is a tyrant, and his dad is given to irrational fits of rage. But uh, Saul, on this occasion, does listen to his son. He is capable of seeing reason, although perhaps we could be forgiven for chuckling as he makes that promise, as surely as the Lord lives, David will not be put to death. Uh, why chuckle? Why laugh? Well, because for two chapters now, we've seen that when Saul makes a promise, it means nothing at all. Saul's own lack of insight continues to be staggering. Instead of breaking down in tears of contrition and repentance as he ought to have done if he'd really understood what his son was telling him, he simply makes yet another promise which he will undoubtedly break again. And in fact, his next murder attempt is only four short verses away. Scene two. 
War breaks out. Again. David is victorious. Again. But an evil spirit from the Lord comes on Saul and he tries to pin David to the wall with his spear. Again. But David eludes him. Again. Saul is not mentally ill. But he is demonized. And both Old and New Testaments recognize the difference between mental illness and demonization. Not necessarily the same thing at all. Saul is sane, but he is not in control. He is not rational. Uh, He has given himself over to envy and hatred. And this has distorted his sight, making him irrational. And envy does that. Uh, envy. Um, it's, this is the reason why in traditional Roman Catholic thinking and teaching, envy is counted as one of the seven deadly sins. That doesn't mean that envy can't be forgiven, nor does it mean that you're going to die as soon as you commit it. But it does mean that envy, like greed, promiscuity, gluttony, pride, rage and laziness, it creates this false kind of worldview inside your head. And it traps us into this self-defeating spiral of self-harming decisions. Unless it's challenged, it's going to kill you. And it kills us by blinding us. Um, The envious person gives license to themselves. They give themselves the license to harm others because as far as they're concerned, and of course the envious person is never aware of being envious, As far as the envious person is concerned, the world is fundamentally unjust. And by doing this, I'm re-establishing justice in the world. Um, This was why I, uh, as a teenager, I used to take things on loan from my older brother and not give them back. I was envious of him. Uh, He had all the good looks and the charm and all the good luck. And so my appropriation of some of his better stuff was simply redressing the balance. But I was wrong. In fact, I was a thief. Saul ought to see that no one shares his view of reality, but he can't see it. Scene two is full of comedy. David flees. That's a good thing to do. That is the standard biblical response to persecution. Saul sends men to guard the house. They guard the front, but they don't think to guard the back of the house, and so David escapes. Well, fancy that. It's so stupid, it's funny. Michal helps him clamber out of the back window, and we can just see that, can't we? David going out backwards, Michal trying to help him, David's tunic riding up as it catches on the windowsill, bum and hairy legs waving in the moonlight, David mooning the moon, guards guards out the front, oblivious, they just don't see it. In the morning, Michal tells the men that David is sick in bed, and she shows them a prop. An idol, a statue covered with blankets. Goat skin on the pillow, if you will. And they are completely taken in by this simplest of, of, of ruses. That they take her at her word and they see what they are told to see. And David escapes. And once again, David uses camouflage 
to very good advantage. You see, one of the things that these stories are all about, um, they're all about starting back, way back, these stories are all about not judging by appearances. Samuel, when he was sent to Jesse to find David and anoint him as king, he was taught by the Lord, don't judge by appearances. Goliath judged David by appearances because David was camouflaged. He was disguised as a harmless teenage boy. Of course, we know there's no such thing as a harmless teenage boy. But, but Goliath, Goliath, David wasn't wearing the clothing that Goliath had learned to recognize. And so Goliath judged by appearances and he paid for that mistake with his life. Now, again, the, ju- the guards judge by what they see, and what they see is what Michal tells them to see. They judge by appearances, and they make a mistake. Although eventually, and it takes a comic length of time, eventually the gag is uncovered, and Michal is asked to explain. Michal lies for a second time. David, he threatened to kill me if I didn't help him escape. And Saul is taken in by this most ridiculous of lies. He doesn't see. Why? Why doesn't he see that this is an absurd lie? Well, why he doesn't see? Because he wants to believe that David is a bad man, even though every single action of David's has been pure and faithful and true right from the start. David threatens to murder his wife? Yeah, right. Scene three. David flees to Samuel in Naoth, which is in the area of Ramah. Um, We see with sadness, um, as we take in the story, we see with sadness that Saul has a network of spies. Israel is not a pleasant place to live. They inform on David and on Samuel and betray their presence uh, to Saul. So Saul sends messengers to capture David. But when they come into the presence of God, coming into a time of praise and worship led by Samuel with the prophets prophesying, the Holy Spirit comes in power on them and they start prophesying too. What what does Saul do? Well, send more men. Now I've heard it said, I've heard it said, what is the definition of insanity? The definition of insanity is to do the same thing again and again and again and expect a different result. Now, that's not actually a very good definition of insanity, but it's a kind of funny thing to say. And here is Saul doing the same thing again and again and again and expecting a different result. He, he's not mentally unwell, but his lack of insight is comical and he has no one to blame for, himself, for, no one to blame for this but himself. Three times he sends men, three times the same result. And then Saul himself comes. Saul makes it about as far as the great cistern at Seku, a well full of water. I think it's a telling detail, but I won't go into detail. It's next to a well full of water. Then he needs help, so he asks for directions. Now, You might notice two things that are slightly strange and comic about this. Firstly, he's the only person in scene three who needs directions, who needs help finding Naoth of Ramah. And 
Secondly, when he does receive help, he receives the same information precisely and identically to the information he had at the start. Where is David? David is over at Naoth at Ramah. It's, it's what he had at the, at the start. Word came to Saul. David is at Naoth at Ramah. Saul is not unintelligent. He's not stupid. But I think we can chuckle once again at Saul's bizarre inability to navigate around his own homeland without help. We notice that he needs to be led, even at home. And as he approaches, the Holy Spirit comes down in power on him too, and he too prophesies, walking along, taking off his clothes, lying naked for a day and a night in, 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 in uh, Samuel's face. And Saul does 24 hours of carpet time. Thus the saying, is Saul also among the prophets? And the saying is ironic, and the saying is comic. And um, look, for me personally, I think it's, it's no wonder that the Jews have such a wonderful feel for ironic comedy. Thank you, Father, for comedy. And thank you, Lord, for Woody Allen, Mel Brooks, Groucho Marx, Jerry Lewis, George Burns, Adam Sandler, Billy Crystal, Jack Black, Ben Stiller, Sasha Baron Cohen, Bette Midler, and Jerry Steinfeld, and many, many, many others of God's first covenant people who have such a wonderful gift and handle on comedy. It's great. What is this about? Well... I think one of the things that this passage is about is that whilst it's unquestionably sad when people resist and oppose God's purposes in their lives, it is also, on occasions, just plain funny. Evil, ultimately, is ridiculous. Twice in the Bible, God is described as laughing, both times in the Psalms. And we might well ask, what makes God laugh? What makes God laugh? Answer, people who think they can outmaneuver him when it comes to being in control. And if God laughs, then we can laugh too. Evil ultimately is ridiculous. It is absurd to think you can outmaneuver God. What are some other things about this passage that we we should talk about? Um, Well, I've got three questions I'd like to talk about briefly. Firstly, why did Michal have an idol in her house? Secondly, was it okay for her to lie? And thirdly, what does it mean that Saul and his men prophesied in the presence of Samuel and the prophets of Israel? So, firstly, why did Michal have an idol in her house? I mean, here we are, 400 years after Moses has led the people out of Egypt, the land of idolatry, and a royal princess has an idol in her house, breaking the second commandment. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down and worship them. Um, I, I remember watching a documentary on television uh, about an archaeological dig in Jerusalem. And the archaeologist, uh, uh, a Jewish man, he was digging through strata corresponding to the time of second kings, um, the kings who reigned immediately before the exile to Babylon. And um, he said, uh, as he was digging, they just uncovered thousands of idols, uh, worship statues, little ones, big ones, 
Um, and he said that idols were so common, he didn't believe that Yahweh was actually known at that time in Israel. Um, now, um, I think he's wrong, of course. The absence of evidence isn't evidence of absence. But his observation and the Bible itself record for us that the Hebrews and the Israelites, before, particularly before they went to exile to Babylon, they were almost always in possession of idols, even though that was a cardinal no-no. Why? I mean, there it is in black and white, second commandment. Why, why do we find Rachel in her tent? She's got idols. Why, does, you know, why do they steal idols from the Philistines? Why, why does Michal have an idol in her, in, in her house? Well, it's probably because that was what everybody around them did in those days. It was difficult to worship an invisible God. Bowing down to a statue was how you worshipped. So the revelation that Michal has an idol at home, a statue about the size of a man that would have been the centerpiece of a shrine before which she bowed down in homage and prayer, that should, should shock us but not surprise us. But, but in this, actually, I think possibly it should give us pause to thought and we should think, is, is my house full of idols? And, and am I blind to that? Because Michal had an idol in her house, but she could not see that it was wrong. Why couldn't she see that it was wrong? Well, because everybody else did it. It's my house. It's your house. Our house is full of idols because actually it's what everybody else does and therefore we don't see that it is wrong. Second question. Was it okay for Michal to lie? Well, actually, if you're noticing, Michal lied twice. The first time was to the guards that Saul sent. She told them that David was sick in bed, but he wasn't. The second time was to Saul, her father, when she told him that David had threatened to kill him if she didn't help. The first lie was to protect David and to save his life. The second lie was to protect herself and to save her own life. Now, without question, God's people are to speak the truth. For God is truth, and lying is from the devil, who is the father of lies. And Jesus never lied. The ninth commandment. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. It presupposes a, a law court setting. No one is to pervert the course of justice by making false accusations or offering false testimony. And in the New Testament, Paul writes in the book of Ephesians that we must all put off falsehood and speak truthfully to one another. Without question, God's people are done with lying insofar as our lies are about manipulating others, selfish ambition, stealing, or avoiding the blame for something wrong we've done. Without doubt, we are to tell the truth. But in this instance, if Michal had refused to lie in order perhaps to keep herself pure, it could have been at, cost, at the cost of David's life. Are there times when, in order to protect others, it is okay to lie? One Christian thinker who agonized over this question was Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who had to work out what it meant to follow Jesus 
while living in Nazi Germany during the Second World War. And did he lie? Well, yes, he did. He, he lied. He, he lied in order to save the lives of Jews fleeing the Third Reich, and he lied in order to save the lives of Ordinans illegally preparing for Christian ministry, and he lied uh, to protect others as well. He lied to the Gestapo as he became involved distantly in plots to assassinate Adolf Hitler. His reasoning, as far as I understand it, was basically that there are times, there are such dark and evil days, when it is unloving to insist on keeping one's own hands clean when everybody else around you has soiled theirs, when keeping yourself spotless and clean would mean others having to pay the price for that. Is he right? I don't know. You can think about it and talk about it over morning tea, on your way home, over the lunch table. Was it okay for Michal to lie? I don't know. I'm sure that David was glad that she did. But it's something for us to consider. And in response to this, my prayer is, Lord, save me from the time of trial and deliver me from evil. Thirdly, what does it mean that Saul and his men prophesied in the presence of Samuel and the prophets of Israel. Well, it means that uh, God's holiness, basically it means that God's holy goodness is infinitely more powerful than evil. And I think that's the main theme of our text in some ways today. Um, yeah, evil causes us to run, evil causes us to, f- to flee. But in actual fact, God's holy goodness is infinitely more powerful and in the long run, we can laugh at, we can laugh at wickedness. In, in scene one, Saul regains control of himself after listening to his son Jonathan. In scene two, Saul loses control of himself spiritually and emotionally and is acting irrationally. In scene three, Saul is completely out of control, bent on killing David. His messengers have to obey Saul's command. But I'm sure they did not want to kill David. I think we can safely presume that David is their hero and we can reasonably conclude that David had saved many of their lives on the battlefield against the Philistines. I'm sure that they did not, they seriously did not want to kill David. As they approach, the Holy Spirit comes on them and they prophesy, which means filled in power with the Holy Spirit, they just start ecstatically, extemporaneously praising and worshipping God. Almost certainly they were singing and praying in poetry. The presence of God was overpowering. They may have been dancing as well. This isn't to say they'd lost control. In fact, they'd regained control. They had regained control of their lives over Saul. In the presence of God, they saw clearly that they did not have to obey him. They could just stay there. Finally, King Saul figures out that if you need a job done right, you've got to do it yourself. So he goes, and the Spirit of God falls on him as well. And he starts prophesying. What is this like? To what can I compare it? Well, I think in some ways it's like Saul is like a very little boy who's in an uncontrollable tantrum. And he runs off because the source of his anger is his brother and he's going to punch him. Meanwhile, dad spots this and swoops down and bundles up the little boy and hugs him and kisses him and tickles him until the little boy is laughing and laughing and laughing and has forgotten all of the original hurt and offense. That spiritually, I think, or that symbolically is spiritually kind of what's happening here. 
Saul's behavior might look like radically disinhibited behavior, and in one sense it is. It may also resemble mental illness, but it's not that either. Saul is most definitely in control. He hasn't lost self-control. No, actually he has regained it. He was lost in anger, in envy, in rage. Now he's found in love. Self-control is a gift of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit always respects our wills. Saul is staying in the moment because he wants to, because it is intensely pleasurable, as David himself knows, to worship God in the presence of God. And what's all this about him taking off his clothes? Well, uh, nudity was shameful in Saul's day, just as it is in our day, but the connotations of nudity were quite different. Nudity in the Old Testament is usually about poverty and vulnerability. So, just as in the presence of God, Moses was instructed to take off his sandals, not because they were dirty, but rather because they were a symbol of Moses' authority to walk the land, and he had discovered, he had found himself on holy ground. In other words, on land set apart for God's exclusive use. So a symbol of authority wasn't appropriate. We don't wear symbols of authority in the presence of the king. It was absolutely right for Saul to disrobe in God's presence. This may have been disinhibited behavior in one sense, but what it reveals is that Saul in that moment finally was unencumbered, was, was delivered from uh, this burden of always wanting to please others which is a factor in his life. And suddenly in God's presence, he's not experiencing that anymore. He just wants to please God. Not worrying about what others thought. Suddenly Saul, naked, in Samuel's face for 24 hours, that's Saul back in control. In control of himself, in the presence of God. And so Saul's warrior intentions have come to nothing, smothered by God's love, undone by joy, the peaceable, peace-loving presence of the Holy Spirit. Um, Such experiences of being filled with the Holy Spirit are not particularly unusual. Um, There may be many here who have experienced just exactly the same thing. I haven't, personally, but I've been in the presence of worshippers who have experienced this the phenomenon known, comically enough, as carpet time. Doing carpet time. Saul, after this, is never again described as being demonized. Not after this. Does that mean that he was completely repentant with respect to his evil desires, his wish to kill David? No. Why not? I don't know. It's a mystery. Saul seems to experience a measure of spiritual and emotional healing from God, but his will seems unaffected. And he will continue to persecute David. That's a mystery, but I guess what it means is that Saul is alone responsible for the decisions he makes in his will. In review... This passage, I think, probably is supposed to make us laugh. God sees things differently 
And when we see things from his perspective, evil ultimately is a joke. It doesn't mean we'll always laugh. Perhaps more usually it's appropriate to cry. But occasionally, just occasionally, in the face of evil, it's good to laugh. Along the way, in this passage, we've seen how people who turn their backs on God and his purposes don't see. They don't get it. And their blindness can become the stuff of comedy. It follows directly that seeing is the gift of God. And there are many who claim to see and yet are blind. The gift of sight is therefore a very good gift to ask God for. Good prayers, um, these are really good prayers uh, if I may advocate them. Um, But some really good prayers are, Lord, please help me to see. Or, Father, show me what you see. Or, dear Jesus, this is what I see. Am I missing something here? Prayer leads to insight. And these are good prayers to pray because Jesus is in the business of opening eyes, giving sight to the blind. And if we see things his way, we see them truly. The Lord be with you. Uh, Please stand with us and we will uh, sing together uh, 